You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. Psalm 8, for the Director of Music, according to Gittith, a Psalm of David. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set into, in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honour. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds, and the animals of the wild, and the birds in the sky, and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Thanks, Alex. Please do keep your Bibles open to Psalm 8. You'll find that helpful. Uh, There is also uh, the sermon outline on the welcome card if you'd like to check that out. Uh, as Aaron said, we're, we're looking at Psalm 8, not Psalm 7 uh, today. Uh, this is our last sermon in this brief uh, Psalms series. I actually preached on these Psalms at my previous church and so each week I've been taking an old sermon and kind of making it suitable for the DPC context. Uh, and I've been really grateful to God for this opportunity to reconnect with these Psalms and kind of experience them afresh. It's been really uh, encouraging and a, a comfort to me uh, personally. But more importantly, I pray that they've been enriching for you as well as a congregation but also individually. Um, You've probably figured out by now we've been taking the Psalms consecutively, uh, week by week, one through to eight. And so God's been setting the agenda each week rather than me picking a Psalm that I think should be the best Psalm or one that's kind of easy or well-known. And so it's been encouraging to see the ways in which um, people have come to me and said, hey, actually that Psalm really spoke to me. That was just what I needed to hear on that particular Sunday. So that's an example of how God is at work. God sets the agenda for us. It is disappointing to skip Psalm 7. At my previous church, one of the elders preached on that sermon, so I didn't have one uh, ready to go. I didn't have the time this week to write one from scratch. Against my personality, because I like completeness, I really wanted to write one and went, no, I'm going to take this as a growth opportunity and we're going to skip Psalm 7 and go to Psalm 8. Uh, And so I trust that God will work through it today. It will be what we need to hear today. I did want to say that if you've enjoyed the Psalms, I've put together a little booklet uh, that you might be interested in grabbing a copy of. There's some on the Welcome Hub up there and I hope to put it online uh, soon. Uh, And these can help you with some of your own private devotion as you study the Psalms. So there's some tips on how to read and study through a particular Psalm but also how to pray through them and even how to sing them if you've enjoyed doing that. Uh, different ideas for tunes and resources so that you can sing them uh, kind of on your own or with your household, however you might like to do it. Uh, So make sure you grab one of those. And There's also some music recommendations of different uh, artists who've set the psalms to music, including Sharon Pike, who's uh, recorded some songs. Some of you will know about that. Uh, You can listen to them online. So uh, some helpful resources in there to help you connect with the psalms. Great, let's pray and ask God to speak to us through his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for the time we've already shared together now 
uh, and we do ask that you would speak to us through Psalm 8, that this would be the words we need to hear today. And so may your Holy Spirit be powerfully at work so that Jesus might be magnified in our hearts. Amen. Humans are the glory and the scum of the universe. Does that statement sound familiar to you? Have you heard that before? Uh, it's, it's a translation from uh, the 17th century French philosopher Blaise Pascal, theologian, mathematician, and actually expresses how many people would feel about the human race. You know, we achieve these wonderful heights of creativity and community and compassion, yet we also descend to these disturbing lows of horror and harm and hate. We see how society wrestles with wanting to view others as valuable, yet at the same time worthless. You know, people champion the rights of the oppressed and the marginalised, yet they demonise those who disagree with them. People speak of the inherent worth of every single individual, yet they relativise the value of the unborn and the elderly. People say that you know, humans are just another species of animal on this planet and we're but a speck in the universe, a, a mere moment in the vastness of history. Yet they'll also say poetic things like, you know, the atoms of long dead stars have fallen to the earth and they kind of make up our bodies so in a kind of magical, mysterious way we're all made of stars. Glory and scum, marvels and muck. Some seek to celebrate humanity for the achievements we've made. Others seek to condemn humanity for the devastation we have brought across the planet. What should Christians think? What stance should we take? How do we balance these truths? Psalm 8 provides an answer for us. Even though we are weak and insignificant, the creator of the universe allows us to share in his glory and magnificence. In fact, the majestic Lord has created us for the glory of the majestic Lord. It's a big idea for today. So let's start with this idea that God is majestic. Our psalm starts with a joyous outburst in verse 1 that declares how God is majestic. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. This is actually the first praise song in the Psalter. We open with Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. Remember that's the gateway to the whole book and they call us to seek out wisdom and redemption in these ancient poems. Yet straight away from Psalm 3 we enter into these dark experiences of pain and anguish. If you have a Bible open you can just scan through the opening verse of each psalm. Psalm 3, Lord, how many are my foes? Psalm 4, answer me when I call to you, my righteous God, give me relief from my distress, have mercy on me and hear my prayer. Psalm 5, listen to my words, Lord, consider my lament. Psalm 6, Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. And Psalm 7, Lord my God, I take refuge in you. Save and deliver me from all who pursue me. Where is the blessed person of Psalm 1 who's flourishing like a tree by a stream? Where is the glorious picture from Psalm 2 of God's anointed one firmly appointed on the holy hill in Mount Zion? 
You know, the prayers we have studied actually speak to the realities of the Christian life. It actually is hard and painful at times. Yet God does answer our prayers. He hears our laments, our cries for help. And when he does, we should praise him. In fact, that's how David ends Psalm 7. If you've got a Bible open, have a look. Last verse of Psalm 7 says, I will give thanks to the Lord because of his righteousness. I will sing the praises of the name of the Lord Most High. And that's what David does now in Psalm 8. It it has been a slog at times as a church family, hasn't it, to get through these psalms. But the time has come today to praise God and to give thanks to him. Even though life actually is hard, we, we can't always dwell on our own pain and misery. We must look in faith to God and his majesty. And that word majestic, which David writes in verse 1, is used to describe the vast waters of the sea, the towering trees of the mighty forest, the, the noble rulers of the nations. God has been described as superior, wonderful, staggering in his greatness. And more specifically, do you see that it's God's name that is majestic? Do you recall recently we saw that whenever you have that word Lord in capitals, that's actually referring to God's covenant name that he revealed to his people. We don't know exactly how to pronounce it, maybe something like Yahweh. But the Jews, they didn't want to misspeak or misuse God's name and so when they were reading their Hebrew Bibles and they came to that word, they'd say Adonai, which means Lord. It works for them and we continue the tradition today in our Bibles. But it does mean that when you come to places like this, you shouldn't be thinking, Lord, Lord. You should be thinking something like, Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name. This is his personal, revealed name. And this is the name that is majestic in all the earth. His name stands for his reputation, for his honour, for his power. God has also said his glory in the heavens. Now, sometimes glory can mean God's weightiness, his holiness, his otherliness. But what David has in mind here is God's splendour. It's another word that's used to describe powerful, breathtaking, wonderful objects and people. God's majesty and glory stretches throughout the earth and is above the heavens. That They are everywhere because God is everywhere. Yet, all of this power, all of this splendour is strangely linked to objects of frailty and smallness. Have a look at verse 2. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. So children and infants use their lips to praise God. And through this, God reveals his strength. He uses the words of children to silence his enemies. Those are his foes and those who are seeking vengeance against God. Think about it. God is so powerful, so mighty, so majestic that he can even make use of the words, the sounds, the babbling of children and infants. Now, how does that actually work? How does does an infant, a baby, actually declare the praises of God? We don't know how that works. Remember, 
The Psalms often give us pictures to illustrate this idea. The idea is that God seeks to make use of frail humans and that's actually part of his glory. God is majestic. He's not limited in any way, not even by infants. He cannot be opposed. He cannot be confined. He cannot be anything other than the majestic Lord of the heavens and the earth. And so in comparison to him, we are all but nothing. Which is our next point. Humans are insignificant. Have a look at verses 3 and 4. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. Compared to God's creation, we are weak and small. David considers the works of God. God created the universe with his fingers. It's like a, a sign, a picture of personal and detailed creativity. David looks to the moon and the stars. Living in the city, we often forget how spectacular the night sky is. As a young man, David would have spent many nights out in the open air, under the stars as he's tending the sheep at night, looking at the moon and the stars. Going to get a little bit sciencey here, so hopefully you'll enjoy that. I know I'm going to enjoy this bit. We're going to talk about the solar system. Think big. Many planets in our solar system have moons. Some have multiple moons. We just have the one. But we shouldn't be disappointed by that because it's, it's a pretty amazing, this moon. Uh, as you know, it reflects the sun's light and so even at night time uh, we can still see it's useful for nocturnal animals. But it does go through its phases, doesn't it? So sometimes there's a full moon with lots of light and other times there's a new moon you can barely see it. This cycle takes about 29 and a half days which is how the first humans were able to track time. They would use the, the, the calendar to come up with their month. The moon also exerts a gravitational pull upon the earth which creates the tides because the water on the earth is pulled towards the moon and as the earth rotates that creates the rise and fall of oceans. This creates currents in the oceans, helps the sea life to thrive. Another thing that I really love about the moon is that size is just right to give us solar eclipses. You see, it's 400 times smaller than the sun, but the moon is 400 times closer to the earth. So from our perspective, it fits perfectly in front of the sun during a total eclipse. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? The moon is marvellous. I mean, it's, it's beautiful, it's practical, it's fascinating. It's the work of an ingenious creator. And then we move on to think about the stars, which is even more staggering. Now, what's the closest star to us? The sun, that's right. The sun is the closest star. Its diameter is 109 times that of the earth. Its mass is 330,000 times that of the earth. The temperature of the sun's surface is 5,500 degrees Celsius. Feel free to write all these things down. They're pretty exciting, aren't they? Its energy comes from hydrogen nuclei smashing together to create helium, which is nuclear fusion. It generates heat and light that comes to the earth. It warms us up. It also gives us seasons and weather. I mean, and our sun is just one of many stars in our galaxy. In fact, the Milky Way has hundreds of billions of stars. 
and it's thought that there are 100 billion galaxies in the universe, each filled with stars. So there could be as many as 10 to the power of 24 stars in the universe. That's one followed by 24 zeros. Are you feeling amazed yet? I mean, I'm fairly excited up here. And today we know so much more about the universe than David did. And rather than it being smaller, it's much, 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 much bigger than David could have ever imagined. And so our great knowledge just makes David's next point even more relevant. Given the vastness of space, given the majesty of the heavens, given the detail and variety of creation, why would God care about us? What is mankind that God is mindful of us? Why would he care? We are insignificant. We are specks in the universe. In fact, we are like the specks on the specks on the specks of the universe. Yet God is mindful of us. He considers us important. This is our next point. God, uh, humans are significant. Here's our final psalm drawing, meant to capture the essence of Psalm 8. I'm not going to explain it to you. Hopefully you'll figure it out as we unpack verses 5 through to 8. Let's start with verse 5. You made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honour. So we are creatures created by God. He made us. And he made us to be special and amazing. We're actually just a little lower than the angels. This is really interesting because in Genesis 1 we read that humans are made on the sixth day along with all the other land creatures. We're made last, we're seen as the pinnacle of God's creative acts but we're still earthly creatures. Genesis 2 says that Adam was made from the dust, the stuff of the earth. Even atheists would generally agree with this. You know, We're at the top of the animal kingdom. Whether it's evolution or God's creation that gets us there, we're at the top. What's interesting is in verse 5 of Psalm 8, David uses another scale to measure our value. See, rather than saying we're the greatest of earthly creatures, he's saying we're the lowest of the heavenly creatures. We have to remember that angels are creatures too, aren't they? God created the angels. Angels are just spiritual creatures rather than physical creatures. And humans belong on that scale of spiritual creatures. This is what it means to be crowned with glory and honour. We learn that God has set his glory or his splendour in the heavens and then we learn that God has given us glory and splendour. We share in God's qualities and his attributes. In some way we are like God. What weird and wonderful creatures we are. We're suspended between two realms, between the glorious and the mundane. And so rather than looking down at the earthly creatures and thinking that, well, we've made it as a race, look what we can do, we should instead look up to the heavenly creatures and be motivated to aspire to a greater life. And what might that involve? We'll have a look at verses 6, 7 and 8. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet. All flocks and herds and the animals of the wild 
the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. Clearly David has Genesis 1 in mind as he writes these words. After creating humans, God commanded them to rule over the world, to rule over the animals. To help humans do this, he crowned them with glory and honour. In other words, he made us to be his image bearers. You may remember that we covered this in our God's Good Design series. You might remember the idea that in ancient times a king would set up a statue to represent himself. He'd put in the foreign lands, the far off lands he'd conquered and so even if he wasn't physically present, people could see this image of the king and be reminded who it was that ruled over them. In the same way we are the image of God, we represent God's rule on the earth and he's even equipped us. We're not static images like a statue. We're dynamic. We can do things. and We've been equipped so that we can exercise his rule on his behalf. And so God has made us significant and he's given us a significant role, putting everything under our feet, not just animals but the whole world. Now, some people, some atheists, they can't deal with the fact that God would create such an immense universe and then focus his attention on this tiny speck of a planet we call Earth. I once listened to a a dialogue on science and belief between Richard Dawkins and John Lennox. If you don't know who they are, they're both Oxford professors. Lennox is a Christian and in the dialogue he speaks about the resurrection of Jesus being a key element of his belief. Dawkins is an atheist And while in the dialogue he respects some of what Lennox has to say, he gets upset about the mention of Jesus. Here's here's my transcript of what Dawkins says next. And then having produced some sort of a case for a kind of deistic God, perhaps some God, the great physicist who adjusted the laws and constants of the universe, that's all very grand and wonderful and then suddenly we come down to the resurrection of Jesus. It's so petty, it's so trivial, it's so local, it's so earthbound, it's so unworthy of the universe. Can you hear the echoes of Psalm 8, verse 4? What is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. See, Dawkins would say that it's small-minded to think that a being powerful enough to create the universe would actually be interested in us. But we would answer that God is not just powerful, he's also loving. And he's perfectly free to focus his attention on this blue marble that we call earth. God has endowed humans with great dignity and honour. We have a great purpose. But here's the thing, we fail, don't we? We were created to be kings. But the story from Genesis 3 onwards is that we failed. We failed to rule over the creation properly. We have a pretty poor track record of caring for the environment and looking after the animals. We exploit the world around us and we don't consider future generations. We oppress and enslave animals. We even oppress and enslave enslave each other. We're supposed to reveal the glory of God but we use our abilities to harm and destroy. We're supposed to be relational beings who demonstrate God's love but we end up in conflict. 
Instead of looking up at the heavenly scale and aspiring to be more like God, we look down on the earthly scale and compare ourselves to animals and we become more like them. In fact, we look to the animals to justify our sinful behaviour. I've even heard people argue that, well, since animals aren't monogamous, then why should we be? We're just another type of animal, right? Why should we resist our urges to do what we please? I mean, when we look to animals for our sexual ethics, then we know that we have failed, right? And the worst part about it is that we're so much more intelligent than the animals and so we can come up with ingenious ways of messing things up and hurting others. This makes a mockery of the human race and a mockery of the God who's created us. Now perhaps that's a bit too general. Maybe you don't personally look to animals for your ethics and if that's the case, I commend you. Great, don't, don't do that. Maybe you shop ethically, plant trees. But the thing is, you know, even individually we fail to live up to this grand picture of what humanity should be. We all have our vices, our shortcomings. We're not worthy of the glory and honour that God has crowned us with. As human beings, we bear the image of God. We have a foot in two realms, the earthly and the heavenly, and we're not really worthy of either. We are the glory and the scum of the universe. We all fail, except for one person except for Jesus. Because you see, where we fail, Jesus succeeds. Have a listen to what happened to Jesus one day. He's at the temple in Jerusalem. This is Matthew 21, verses 14 to 16. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple, temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David! They were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read? From the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise. Do you hear what Jesus has just done there? He's quoted Psalm 8. The children around the temple there praising Jesus and Jesus says, it's actually a fulfilment of prophecy. Now, stop and let that sink in for a moment. In Psalm 8, who do the children and infants praise? God. Who are the children in Matthew 21 praising? Jesus. Jesus is God. And why do the children praise God in Psalm 8? It's to silence his enemies. And here Jesus quotes the psalm to silence these men who are therefore God's enemies. They stand in the way of the kingdom. Jesus is Yahweh. He's the God of the Old Testament who is to be praised. And even the the weak, frail, small children of Israel get this. It's the self-important leaders who don't get it. But there's more to Jesus than that. Because not only is he true God, he's also the true man. Let's go to another verse. This is Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 to 9. 
It's not to angels that he, that's God. It's not to angels that God, he, has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified. What is mankind that you are mindful of them? A son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honour and put everything under his feet. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet at present we do not see everything subject to them. But we do see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honour because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Jesus is the one who truly fits the description of Psalm 8. It's harder to see it in our translation, but David writes in verse 4 about the Son of Man in Psalm 8. The NIV puts this as human beings, which, which is a true translation, it's a possible translation, but it just loses some of the poetry. See, David uses the phrase in Hebrew, son of man, which can mean people in general or also a particular person. It's kind of got a bit of a range of meaning there. And so this is the difficulty of putting Hebrew poetry into English, right? But in any case, the author of the letter to the Hebrews, he sees the link since Jesus referred to himself as the Son of Man. This was a prophetic or messianic title that he took upon himself. And so it also shows that Jesus is the true man, the epitome of God's design for humanity. Even though he has existed eternally as God the Son, a member of the Trinity, he actually was made a little lower than the angels when he was born onto this planet as Jesus of Nazareth. And today, now, he's crowned with glory and honour because he's risen from the dead, he's seated in heaven with God the Father, he's returned to his rightful position as true God but also true human as the representative of humanity. And all things are placed under his feet and one day everything in the entire universe will be subject to Jesus. He will be the ruler who achieves all that humanity was destined for. He is the true king. And so it is only in Jesus that we can fulfil our mandate from God. It's only in Jesus that we can achieve the success that we fail to grasp. It's only in Jesus that we can be who we are truly meant to be. Praise God. In Jesus we are lifted up and glorified and crowned with honour and made greater than the angels. Some people might read this psalm and scoff at its idealism, its naivety. These are impossible heights for humans to achieve. Impossible for us perhaps, but not for Jesus. And so we see that this psalm has even more depth than David realised and he wrote it. You know, we failed to achieve the glorious state described in these verses, yet if we have faith in Jesus, we can achieve them in him. I mentioned earlier the words from Blaise Pascal, that little sentence or phrase is often quoted to show that humans are necessarily flawed. It's in our DNA, it's who we are. But Pascal was a Christian and he understood that our failings are due to our sin something that Jesus came to earth to deal with. So listen to the full quote. 
What kind of freak is man? What a novelty he is. How absurd he is. How chaotic, chaotic and what a mass of contradictions. And yet, what a prodigy. He is judge of all things, yet a feeble worm. He is repository of truth and yet sinks into such doubt and error. He is the glory and the scum of the universe. Pascal speaks of the effects of the fall and how our creatureliness is not the problem but rather our sinfulness. You see, being human is not what makes us scum, it's being sinners. And so the true miracle is not that God would pay attention to mere mortals like us but rather that he would forgive revolting rebels like us. But he does this for anyone who turns and puts their faith in Jesus. And so it's this knowledge that turns us back to God, turns us back to him in praise. And that's where our psalm ends. Have a look at verse 9. Lord our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This psalm literally ends where it began. Praising the Lord. The mighty creator of the universe has shown us amazing grace by giving us an exalted position in the universe. And so this should turn us to praise him. The majestic Lord has created us for the glory of the majestic Lord. And so look to the created world around you, to to the moon and the stars, and your response should be to praise the God of majesty who has set his glory in the heavens. Look to the privileged position you have as a being who bridges heaven and earth and so praise God. Consider the fact that you are so tiny yet you have a magnificent role in imaging the creator and so praise God. Realise that yes, you fail miserably in your role but God is gracious. God forgives you. He restores you in Jesus, the real man, the ultimate human and so praise God. Don't look to yourself and your weakness and your frailty and your failures. Don't look down into your heart and all those emotions of anxiety and inadequacy and shame. Don't don't even look down at the animals and find your purpose and identity from the beasts of the earth. Instead, look up. Look up to the God who's created you. Look up to Jesus who has restored you. Look up and find the grace you need to live out the destiny that he has set upon you. Look up and praise God and give him glory for the majestic Lord has made you for the glory of the majestic Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord, our Lord, our hearts, our minds are just full, full of this amazing imagery from your psalm, from Psalm 8. These words of David are just staggering. And we thank and praise you for, for who you are, for the fact that you've made us, that you love us, that you care for us and that you've sent Jesus to restore us so that we can achieve uh, the full potential and plan for who we are, that we can be glorified in him. And so may we find our worth and value not in what we do or what we fail to do but in the fact that we are united to Jesus by faith. And so may that give us hope, strength and endurance. And we praise you every day. Amen.